Open your Bibles this morning, if you would, to the book of Micah, chapter 1. Micah, chapter 1. Before we get there, I want to read two verses out of Ezekiel, chapter 11. Uh, But you don't need to turn there. But but turn, if you would, to Micah, chapter 1. We'll, We'll get there in just a moment. In Ezekiel, chapter 11... Uh, The Bible says, the Lord is speaking here, and he said, I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and I will give them an heart of flesh. Now that sounds like it's it's kind of redundant. He said, I'll I'll take the the stony heart out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. And what he's saying is, I'll take away the hardness in your heart, and give you a softness, a tenderness, a yieldedness. And, uh, and then he says in verse number 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And then he says this, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now you understand that in the Old Testament, Jesus, uh, 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 the prophet here is talking uh, to the people of Israel, and the Lord is talking about the people of Israel. And so when it says, they shall be my people and I will be thy God, their God, it's talking about Israel, the relationship that God has with his people in the Old Testament. And, and God kept that relationship with them. He still has that relationship with them today. And the promises that he made to the Jews in the Old Testament are still going to be fulfilled in the future. And uh, so the, the relationship between the Lord and his people is a very special thing. Now the New Testament's a little different. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we become a part of his family. He becomes our Heavenly Father and we become his children. But the relationship is very similar. We don't replace what was happening with Israel. It's a whole different thing. But now we have a relationship with God He is our Father, He is our King, He is our Shepherd, we're His children, we're His subjects, we're His sheep. And that relationship has a, or let me say it this way, that relationship ought to have a huge impact on us and how we relate to our God. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look in Micah chapter 1, and... um, Micah is a little little different uh, as a prophet. Uh, he prophesied at the same time, uh, he was a contemporary with Isaiah. But Isaiah was a prophet to the cities. Micah didn't care for the cities primarily because of the wickedness that was there. Uh, some folks would say that Isaiah was a prophet to the rich people. Micah was a prophet to the poor people. Isaiah prophesied in the cities, Micah prophesied in the country. But if you read the book of Micah, the prophecy of Micah, you'll find another thing or two that's unique about him. Uh, First of all, he prophesied to both the north and the southern kingdom. Uh, Look at verse number one. It says, The word of the Lord came to Micah, the Morristite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria, 
which was the capital of Israel, and Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah. So Micah is addressing the entire nation of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then there are three times in the book of Micah where he addresses specific groups of people. The first one is found in verse number 2 of chapter 1. Notice what it says. Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. His first address goes to the heathen population, those people who are not believers, those people who are not serving the Lord, those people not following God. We have any of those around here today? I mean, they're, they're, they're everywhere. We would, we would suggest that the majority of the problems that are occurring in America today are because of heathen population. We don't use that term heathen so much as a pejorative, just as describing their relationship with the Lord. They don't know the Lord. They don't have Christian values. They're not concerned about the things that will please the Lord. They're living their lives in order to please themselves. Uh, look at Micah chapter 2. Here's, here's uh, a description of the people that Micah is addressing, the Lord is addressing, with this first call. Notice in chapter 2, verse number 1. He says, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil above their, upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man and his heritage. Those are the people that he's talking about. Now again, reading those verses, we can relate to them very well because of what's happening in our country. And we would be quick to say, that those people who are, who are, who are uh, involved in all the violence and who are, who are destroying property and, and taking other people's possessions, all of those kinds of things, they're one of the major reasons we're having the problems we're having in America today. But that's the first group of people that Micah addresses, the heathen population. There's a second group. Look in chapter 3 and verse number 1. It says, And I said, Here I pray ye, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and, and, and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces, as for the pot, and as flesh within the cauldron. So the second group that he's talking to are the heartless princes. Verse number one, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know judgment? He's talking here about government leaders, those who are in authority, those for whom we're supposed to pray, those who make the laws, who determine what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. Would you consider the possibility that some of those who are in our government today are responsible for what's happening in America? Well, certainly so. I mean, they're making laws 
that don't make any sense so many times. I mean, they're, they're, they're laws that work exactly the opposite, cause exactly the opposite result of what they're, what they're looking for. And, and it's hard to understand how they can think that way. But Micah says, these are people who hate the good and love the evil. They, the, the Bible says men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. But this says they love the evil. They hate the good and love the evil. So they're doing what they can to try to suppress the good and try to exalt the evil. That's a picture of our country today. That's what's going on. And we would, we would assign the responsibility to that, for that to a certain segment of our government, generally speaking. But the truth is we all see that as being a problem. But then Micah addresses a third group of people. And it's found beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 6. Notice what he says. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear hear thy voice. Hear, O ye mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. So the third group that Micah addresses is the Hebrew people. These are the folks that are identified as being his people. They shall be my people and I shall be their God. That's who he's addressing here. And Micah is saying very clearly, okay, there are those who are heathen, the heathen population. I mean, that's the the vast majority of people. They don't know God. They're not interested in spiritual things. They're they're embracing things that will satisfy their own flesh, their own desires, and they certainly have a a bare part of the responsibility for for the way things are. Uh, But then there's also the the heartless princes. They're the the people in in leadership, the government. And and not only are they uh, doing things that they should not do, they are making laws that don't make any sense. They, they hate that which is good, and they love that which is evil. And yes, they bear some of the responsibility. But then he says there's a third group, and that is the Hebrew people. These are my people. These are the people that have a relationship with me. These are people who ought to know better. These are people who should be guided by the principles and the truths that they've learned from me. God says, I have a controversy with those people. Now, I have thus far applied what we've been saying to what's going on in our nation. Old Testament, talking about Israel, much of it is, is it, it's, it's, it's specific to them. We can't take uh, a lot of what God says about Israel and apply it to the church, but there are principles in this passage, I think that do apply to what's going on today. The heathen population, the heartless princes, the, the, general, the general mass of what we would call the unsafe, people who don't know the Lord, then the government who is supposed to be doing what is good for those of us who live in the country, and then the third group, 
the Hebrew people, which in the Old Testament were the Jews, but in the New Testament, for I, as far as our relationship with the Lord, it's, it's talking about us, those of us who go to church. And we bear some responsibility for what's going on in our country. Now, what was, what was the controversy that God had with his people? Um, in chapter 6 of Micah, you'll find two different, two, different, two different sides of the conversation. The Lord asks several questions, and then you have the people responding by asking questions as well. So let's look at the Lord's questions to begin with. First of all, look at verse number 3 of chapter 6. He says, O my people, what have I done unto thee? Uh, What a question. What have I done unto you? The better question would be, what have I done for you? But the Jews were thinking that the Lord had done some things to them. The Jews had a habit as they, as they, you know, as went through their history, they had a habit of blaming God for situations they were in because they didn't see that God was using those situations to get them out of bad situations. When they got, got delivered from Egypt and they were in the wilderness, they complained about the food. They complained about the fact that they were wandering in this wilderness and they were going to be there forever and they were going to die in the wilderness. Well, there's a reason why that happened. It's because they didn't obey the first time God said, go into the land and, 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 and claim victory over it. But they were blaming God for their situation. And then they said things like, it would sure be better. It would have been better for us. We just stayed in Egypt. What, what good is this out here? And the point is, they were looking at it and saying, Lord, what have you done to us? The better question would be, what has he done for us? But sometimes we get our, our, our thinking twisted. So instead of thinking about what he's done for us, we think about what he's done to us. Uh, remember hearing about a little boy, the guy's name was Joe, and he was a Christian. And he had another, other, other Christian friends, one particular friend that he was close to. And he would often say to that friend, speaking of his relationship with the Lord, he would say, the Lord loves me. And the Lord loves you. But then there would be a situation that would come up where things weren't going right in his life. And Joe got feeling bad and, and, and he was having some challenges. There was some trouble in his life. And his friend wasn't having any trouble. And so then he would say to his friend, you know what? God loves me, but he likes you. Do you understand what he was saying? He was saying, Sure, God loves me, but I'm not sure he really likes me. Because look at, look at what's going on in my life. And then look at what's going on in your life. You, you've got all the, all the benefits. Everything's going good for you. But for me, I'm having problems. So he came to the conclusion that God loved, God loved him, but he likes the other guy. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't like me. He love, likes the other guy. He treats him better than he, than he treats me. Have you ever felt that way? Now you say, well, I I really don't think that God acts that way. But have you ever had in your mind the thought that there's other Christians who are dealing with less problems than you are? How How come my lot in life is so difficult? How come I'm facing so many challenges? 
I mean, I've, I've got this battle that's going on, and I'm looking at other people. They're not doing what I'm doing for the Lord. They, they're not serving the Lord like I am. And yet they're, they, they have it a whole lot better than I do. And we, we get our, our thinking twisted, and we start assuming that God is treating one person different than he treats another person. That his approach to them is different. And, and maybe it's because he likes them more than he, than he likes me. He loves me, I know that. But does he really like me? If he, if he liked me, how come I'm going through all of these, all of these problems? That's far more common, I think, than we were, want to admit. We need to remember that God is not unjust in his dealings. Never. Doesn't matter what happens. God is not being unjust toward us or being unfair toward us. Some of the challenges that we face are the result of our own choices. We, we sow the wrong things, so we reap the wrong things. And that, that principle does not go away because God loves us or likes us. He gives us guidance to help us know what we should do. And when we do the right thing, then we, then we reap the right benefits. But when we choose to make choices that are different from what he intends for us to make, then the consequence is going to be that we're going to have bad, bad results. So God is saying to his people, what have I done to you? Why, why are you thinking that I've got it in for you? Um, I think sometimes we do it, we make assumptions that, that lead us down that road, even with humans on this earth. But notice, he says, where, where, what have I done unto you? Verse 3. And then he says, and where have I wearied thee? Testify against me. So he asks those two questions, and then he answers them himself. Look at verse number 4. So here's what I've done to you. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now that what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Now that reference in verse number 5 is kind of interesting. That goes back to Numbers chapter 22. Balak was an eagle king who was an enemy of Israel. And he wanted Balaam, who was a prophet, to prophesy against Israel. He wanted them to prophesy evil against Israel. And the Lord stopped that from happening. In fact, he turned it around and made Balaam prophesy good for Israel. So the Lord says, What have I done unto you? Wherein have I testified or where wearied thee? Testify against me. And he says, well, I'll tell you what I've done. First of all, I delivered you out of the hand of bondage, out of, the, 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 uh, out of bondage in Egypt. I mean, things were not good for, for Israel when they were in Egypt. I delivered you out of Egypt. And then I gave you direction in the form of Moses and Aaron and Miriam. You wandered in the wilderness because of a choice that you made, but I brought you into the promised land as I promised that I would. And on top of that, he defended them and kept Balak from prophesying evil against them. So God's saying, you know, I've got a controversy with you because of the way you're thinking about me. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. 
So look at, look at Israel's response. Verse 6, it changes. And they ask this question. They say, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do you understand what's going on there? Israel is being very sarcastic in their response. Lord, what do you want me to do? Shall I, shall I bow before you? Well, that's probably a very good thing, but they're not thinking about bowing in humility. They're thinking about bowing out of, out of a, a sense of requirement or whatever. Uh, they're, they're, being, they're being sarcastic because they're thinking in their mind, we kept the sacrifices. We've done what he's told us to do. We've paid attention to the commandments and tried to be careful about making sure we do everything exactly right. So what more do you want? We're doing everything you said for us to do. Make the comparison to what goes on here. It would be Christians who say, I go to church every Sunday. And I read my Bible like I'm supposed to and I pray. And I tithe, I give like I'm supposed to. All of the things which the Bible says that I'm, I'm supposed to be doing, I'm, I'm doing those things. So how come the Lord doesn't bless me more? How come the Lord isn't doing other good things for me? How, how come doesn't the Lord like me more? Because I'm, I'm doing everything I, I can do to serve him. Remember in Ezekiel, he said, I'll take out of you the heart of stone and I'll, I'll give you a heart of flesh and you'll be my people and I'll be your God. He was saying that I will establish a relationship with you, a personal relationship that means something, a relationship that will allow us to communicate, a relationship that will help you to understand a little better what my heart is and what my desire for you is. All over this country today, there are people that are sitting in church just like this who are there out of a sense of responsibility because they're supposed to come to church, but their heart is not in what they're doing. We don't need to come to church and leave when the service is over exactly the same as we were when we came in. That doesn't help us at all. It doesn't, it doesn't help our relationship with the Lord. It puts us in a situation where we feel like we're conforming to what he says to do, and yet there's not that, that heart relationship that God intends for there to be there. So they ask, what, Lord, what do, you, what do you want me to do? We're, we're doing everything we're supposed to do. What do you want me to do? Well, should I, should I bow down in reverence before you? Is that something more that I can do that will impress you with the fact that I'm trying to do the right thing? He goes on and says, what about, what about giving you, I'm going to sacrifice my pride, what about sacrificing my possessions? Look again at verse number 
Verse number 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? What if I give you more, Lord? What if I, what if I give you all that I have, all of my possessions? Well, they're being sarcastic, but you know what? That'd be a good, a good way to do it because he owns everything anyway. We're to give him everything. There's nothing that we should be holding back from him. And yet there are many Christians who put their tithe or their offering in the offering plate and say, I've done my duty. By the way, if you give and you don't give with a heart of joy, if you're not giving because you love the Lord, if you're not giving with the right attitude, then your giving doesn't amount to anything anyway. Giving is an act of worship. The Bible says we're not to be giving grudgingly, which means we don't give because we have to. I, I've told our folks at Trinity uh, on more than one occasion about a lady in a church I pastored in North Carolina for a while. And she would come in. She was the biggest. She was, was very unhappy. Uh, I started to say she was the biggest grouch, but she was very unhappy. She, she came in the back door of the church one Sunday morning and I, I met her, and I shook her hand, and I said, well, it's good to see you this morning. And she looked at me and said, what's the matter? You think I wasn't coming? That was her response. But she would give, when she would give, she, she would give in cash, and she would ball it all up in a little ball. And she would literally, when the offering plate came by, she would throw it in there with this ugly look on her face. I'm, yeah. And so when she gets to heaven, she goes, say, Lord, I, I gave. You told me to give. I've been, I gave. But she did so with the wrong heart attitude. We're not to give grudgingly. It's not, it's not because we have to. We give because we love the Lord. We give because we're grateful for what he's done for us. And we don't just give our tithe or our offering. We're supposed to give everything we have. They said, should we give our all of our possessions, thousands of rams, thousands of rivers of oil. Would that satisfy you? And then it went on, they went on to a third thing. Look at verse number seven, the latter part of it. He said, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Well, you remember that uh, Isaac, the Lord asked Abraham to offer his son Isaac on an altar. <coughs> and Abraham went up the mountain, prepared the altar, got the wood, put him on the altar, put his son on the altar, and raised the knife. And the Lord stopped him. But Abraham was willing, with a right heart, to even offer his son. All of these things that they're talking about. Shall I sacrifice my pride? Shall I sacrifice my possession? Shall I sacrifice my progeny? Or my, my, you know. So I have a P word for the last point. Skip loves that. Shall I sacrifice my children? My firstborn? Do I, do I need to do that? Is that what I need to do? Will that, sac- will, will that, will that satisfy you? God loves me, but he doesn't like me. Maybe I need to do these things. Will that help? 
That were th- those were the questions that Israel asked the Lord. And then we come to the verse that is the key verse of the book of Micah, and you know it very well. We've seen it, and, and most of you haven't memorized verse number eight. Micah says, "He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee?" And then he mentions three things. Now. God does not require anything of us for salvation. We don't earn our salvation because of what we do. God does not require anything of us to be sanctified. We don't earn our sanctification by what we do. The Spirit of God does that. God does not require any of us, any anything of us, in order for Him to provide our needs. There, there are just so many things God God does just because he's God and because he loves us. So what is it that God requires of us? Well, he mentions three things here. Verse number eight, what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Now, what do those three things mean? Notice that it says to do justly. It does not say to demand justice. We have a tendency to think that justice means that everybody who does something to us gets what he deserves. And we're hypocritical sometimes when we talk about justice because we talk about justice as if we think everybody else ought to be the recipient of justice for what they've done that they shouldn't have done, but somehow we ought to be able to avoid it. Myra and I watched a movie last night. It was called Crossroads, A Story of Forgiveness. It's on the Hallmark Channel. It's about a man who has a family, one daughter, two sons, and of course his wife. The wife and the daughter go to the mall to pick up something that they're going to put in a care package to send to their son, the son who's in college. As she's coming out of the mall, she's making a left turn out of the mall, and a speeding car hits the van. The van is pushed across into the next lane. Another car hits it. The van turns over and immediately bursts into flames. The father is on his way back to work, and he has to drive down that same road. He sees what's going on, gets out of the car, goes down and realizes that it's my van. And the police are trying to hold him back. He said, that's my family. They're in that van. And then he begins to check and see what happened. And the police department says that his wife was at fault. She turned left in front of the car that was coming. There's a principle among policemen and the law that says it doesn't matter how fast the person's coming from the other direction. If you turn in front of them, you're at fault. doesn't matter. That's what they always tell you. Well, he disputed that because there was a witness there who said there were two teenage guys that were in in cars flying down the road. They were racing. The police said we can't do anything about that unless we can verify that they actually were racing, that the cars were going too fast. The father was saying, do you not think that we deserve justice? Do you not think that that my wife and my daughter, if otherwise they've died, 
And, and the people who killed them don't, they, you know, they're not punished. So they, through a series of investigative uh, efforts, they find a camera that happens to show the road at that time, and they can tell by the, by the video that the car that is coming down the road is flying. I mean, it's, it's doing 80 or 90 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone. And they can identify the guy who was in the car. So the police go and aggress this teenage boy. They bring him to court. The father is in court. And he's looking around. He's trying to find where, where's the guy that, because he hasn't met him yet. He hasn't seen him. And he looks over and he, and he identifies a guy. And he says to the lawyer, is that him? Is that him? And she said, possibly. But he's looking at a guy that's got all, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't look like a real good guy. He's got the appearance of a drug addict or whatever. And he's assuming that's the guy. They call the guy to the front, and he gets up. And it's a teenage boy that looks like his sons. And he goes to the front, and the father all of a sudden begins to see things in a different light. So he went to his attorney and asked, can I meet with that boy alone? They gave him that permission, and he sat in the room with the boy, and he said, do you have anything you want to say to me? My wife and my daughter are, are dead. And the, little boy, the, the young man could not control himself. He was just overwhelmed. He was, he was weeping, and, he, and he, couldn't, he couldn't talk. And finally he said, the only thing happened. What it says, I'm so sorry. His parents, the boy's parents, were, were demanding that he plead not guilty. Because if he was charged and sentenced, he would spend 30 years in prison for vehicular homicide. That's what was going to happen. The father came back out and went to his attorney and said, Hey, I want to change the way we approach this. And he offered a, a plea bargain, wanted to, it was very unusual. They agreed to it, and the plea bargain was they would reduce the, the, the sentence, and the boy would go with him to speak at the high school. He had asked the principal about, why don't you do something? I mean, these kids, they're out of control. And, and we do, we have the police officers that come in, they don't listen to them. Okay? Can I speak to him? And then can this young man speak to him? And the young man came in. And we broke down before the student body. And he said this. He said, because of my selfish choices, he said, I ruined the lives of five people. Two of them who I killed. And then the father who's left here and his two sons. And if you count my parents, that's seven. And if you count me, that makes eight. His parents were trying to get him not to do it. He said, I can't tell them that I'm innocent. I'm guilty. I know what I've done. They always taught him to tell the truth. But he said, if I don't do this, well, if you do it, you're going to go to prison. He said, if I don't do this, I live the rest of my life with this guilt because I know what I've done. They changed the plea, the plea bargain, one more time. The father did. And he wanted no prison time for the boy. 
and he wanted him to agree to go with him to all the schools and to speak. The judge said, that's very unusual. You're saying you don't want him to go to prison? And he said, no, I don't want him to go to prison. And the, and the judge said, so you're saying that you forgive him? And he said, yes, I forgive him. And based on a true story, and they toured several high schools. That's, that's a picture of what these, this verse says about how we're supposed to deal with it. Do justly. I'm going to do the right thing. But then it says, secondly, love mercy. Do justly means I'm going to be fair. To love mercy means I'm going to be forgiving. Justice and mercy don't seem to go together. But we sure better be thankful that they do for us. Because that's the only hope we have of redemption. God does not demand justice from us. He paid our justice when he sent his son to die on the cross. And he gives us instead mercy. A mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and that justice demanded death. The mother said, but I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. Napoleon replied, but your son does not deserve mercy. The woman said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. And Napoleon, the emperor, said, well then, I will have mercy. Mercy is forgiveness. It's a, it's a willingness to not hold people accountable for what they did. Now, I'm not talking about civil law, and I'm not talking about situations. I'm talking about our hearts as believers. God says, one of the things I want is for you to do justly, to do the right thing. I want you to love mercy, to be forgiving. And then thirdly, he said, I want you to walk humbly with your God. I want you to be faithful to me. Now, what does it mean to be faithful to God? Walking with God means that you are pointing in his direction. I mean, you're, you're, you're pointing the same direction that God's saying to go. And, and, and let me just say, we've, we've got this in our mind. We have to work and work and work and work and work and pray and, and search and, 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 and fast. and all. Oh, we've got to do all kinds of things so that we can know God's will. Can you, can you believe the possibility that God's not trying to hide his will? God's not trying to make it difficult for us to know what he wants us to do. So often what it amounts to is just submitting to what he says. If we have tender hearts, the Spirit of God will give us direction and guidance to help us to know what he wants. And it's simply a matter of yielding to him. So it means you're pointing the right direction. It means you're going at his speed. Well, sometimes his speed varies. Sometimes he says wait. Sometimes he says go slow. Sometimes he says act now. But we've got, we've got to be sensitive to what he's, what he's telling us. We have to do what he says. Number three, it means we're covering his ground. Staying in step means that you're always at any point in the journey in the center of his will. 
always right where he wants us to be. Staying in step means that you're, that you're following his direction. Sharing his fellowship. Remember Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20? I'll give them one heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take the stony heart out of their flesh, give them a heart of flesh. They may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And then finally, it means that you will be reaching his destination. You'll get where he wants you to go. We get so consumed sometimes with where we're supposed to be way down the road. How about, how about being concerned with where you're supposed to be today and tomorrow and the next step? Don't, don't be so concerned about looking way down the road. Let's just make sure that we're where we ought to be right now. And if we're where we ought to be right now and where we ought to be tomorrow and where we ought to be the next day and where we ought to be the next day after that, then eventually we'll be in the right place next week, we'll be in the right place next month, we'll be in the right place next year, and we'll end up at the right place if we'll just do it one step at a time, trusting Him. What does the Lord want from me? Not a lot. He wants you to to do justly, not demand justice, but to do justice. Be fair. Do exactly the opposite of what the heathen population was doing in the early chapters in Micah, Micah chapter 2. To have mercy, to, to, to love mercy, to be concerned about the fact that that guy who has done that is guilty, he may be guilty, and he may need to be locked up for his own safety and for the safety of others. But, but criminal justice does not preclude our being willing to forgive them if they did something to us. And number three, make sure that you're walking closely and carefully staying in the will of God as you walk humbly with your God. You don't, you don't need to sacrifice your pride, although that ought to be gone. It's not, that's not what impresses God. It's not because you give him everything, although we ought to do that. That's not what impresses God. It's not because you give your children. Although we ought to do that, but that's not what impresses God. What impresses God is a heart that says, I'm going to love justice. I'm going to do justly. I'm going to love mercy, and I'm going to walk humbly with my God. That's what God requires. And if we do that, then we'll be in his will. We'll be honoring him. Our words will honor him. Our thoughts will honor him. Everything we Everything we do will bring, bring honor and glory to Him. And we won't be wondering, Lord, why is somebody else doing better than I am? Because we'll see God as He really is and we'll understand clearly what He's doing in our lives. Let's stand together with heads by my supposed. Father, we thank You this morning.